Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephanie, and I am so thrilled and delighted to be joined today by author Richard J. Marks. Richard wrote Rise to the Sun, Seven Footsteps and Seven Prayers for Getting Out of Hell. Well, if that's not a title that needs some explanation and uh, open for a huge talk, I don't know what is. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining me on the show and, and sharing with our listeners Rise to the Sun. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's wonderful to be together. Absolutely. And uh, I, I love, love the book and, and love the subtitle, as I said, Seven Footsteps and Seven Prayers. Just hearing that, I feel like there's a path spread before me. And, uh, and I thank you so much for sending the book along so I could see what that path is. So tell us a little bit about how this book came to be before we dive in. How it came to be? Well, I think that all writers learn at some point they can't write alone. It's hard to write alone. And so I didn't sit down alone to accomplish a manuscript and then sell it to a publisher. I was invited into a social enterprise, which was formed in Washington, D.C. by a professor of an MBA program for entrepreneurs. It's called New Degree Press. And the manuscript creation site is called the Creator Institute. So it takes writers very quickly through the manuscript process into a path straight into publishing. And entrepreneurs and people who are engaged in this kind of program are coming up with an idea that will launch something in the world. So it's not just purpose-driven, but it's meant to do something in the world and not just be one more startup. Fantastic. What a great concept that is. That sounds amazing. How many authors were involved in this program? Well, it's incremental. It's scaling is what it's doing. So the goal, if I've read it correctly recently, is to have 10,000 first-time authors in 10 years. And they're moving quickly on that trajectory. So I believe now it's 168 authors in one four-month period going through a writing of their manuscript and those who get greenlit, which is the majority, are then immediately on the path to publishing, which takes four more months. So in an eight-month process, somebody's moved from zero to a book. Wow. That that's it's, amazing. And it's impressive. Yeah. Now when you were invited into this program, did you already have a vision for what the book would be, or were you germinating it all within that short time? The vision had to be there in the regard of what the professor, the founder, Eric Kester, 
calls a big idea, which I think he borrowed from TED, the TED stage or TED Talks, which is what's your big idea? And the big idea for him couldn't be a lot of mumbo jumbo. It couldn't be a long worded thing. For me, it was spiritual media. And once I explained that spiritual media was where I felt I needed to point myself, he got really excited and said, you're right on trend. People are looking for that. Do you want to start on Thursday? And it went like that. I didn't have to come up with the proposal because it was clear enough that just knowing what the big idea was, was a huge piece. It didn't have to be all worked out in advance. Wow. And that that helped me a lot because I worked in film, Stephanie, and I know from the way I operate, which you can talk about, which is very visually, is when you create story in filmmaking, you're storyboarding. So you're cutting away images and words, not just adding images and words, not adding another chapter. You are moving things around like a storyboard. So it's best to dramatically tell the story. And I was able to do it that way in the process of writing because I didn't know what the quote unquote answers were to this spiritual media journey or telling people how they can change. The book is really about change and the change really is to find freedom. And I didn't have the answers when I began writing. That's the writing journey. Wow. Was that scary not to have the answers before you started? Again, on the writing journey, I'll just tell you, it was amazing to have a wonderful editor who is very upbeat and also has a PhD in literature. And she was more than patient with me. I think the patience didn't have to be there because she would roll with me and tell me when there wasn't enough of something that needed to be there. So as an editor, she was very effective in making sure that I didn't skip transitions, that I didn't leave the reader out, that she was looking for gaps in the narratives. But when I would put big chunks of text in, I would explain to her, it was just to hold the idea there. It was holding space for the idea and whether or not the idea would stick. That's what I mean by storyboarding. I would have to determine whether to keep it, move it, or cut it. So keep, move, cut. That's the writing process for me. It's not just going through one narrative. And in this book, there are 10 interviews that are primary that go with the footsteps themselves, which is the journey of people's story of getting through their own personal hell and getting through to the other side. That's the hopefulness of the book, but it's the, also the action of the journey, which is we can get through this. You can get through no matter where you're coming from. And so the, non, the nonfiction interview part meant that I also had to figure out where to put those people's stories. Did they belong in footstep three or footstep seven or footstep two? And did it need to be broken up into two places? And did I need to take two people and bring them together? All those questions had to be answered in the journey of writing. So no, it wasn't scary. It was just a lot of material. It certainly is a lot of material. And it's quite a thick book too. (laughs) So, I mean, it's certainly a book for our times today because we're all feeling, certainly we're all, have all been on a journey, but 
we're in a very unique journey now. So knowing that there are steps, one foot in front of the other, that will lead us through this journey is incredibly helpful. Uh, was this book written in reflection of what's going on? Well, if you don't mind my doing this, Tia, could I ask you a little back before where we'll answer together, I suppose sure. is what I'm asking to do, that we do this together? Absolutely. Is, why is this a book for our times? Hmm, okay, well, I think that certainly people are feeling like the road that they thought they were on might have just suddenly disappeared before their very eyes. And um, some people have easily made a transition or pivot to a new road and others are still staring straight ahead wondering where the road went. So, so seven footsteps and seven prayers for getting out of hell, I think that could actually be said of what we need right now or tell me where the path is to move forward. I think that's true. And I spoke to a good friend today in Paris, in Europe, who was talking about the problem of people feeling that we, they were hoping they would return to normal or return to what 2019 was like. And coming from the point of view of this seven footsteps is not return, but to turn, to turn in a new direction. And that's how you do it when you can't see the path. And I wrote back today and posted that part of the message we've been getting in New York State from Governor Cuomo is that the reason we have flattened the curve here, and despite the odds that, quote unquote, we did the impossible on day 111 of COVID lockdown, that their message has not just been love each other, but it was really to love each other. And that message has helped people wear their masks. Mm -hmm but it's also helped people understand that we're not going back. Andrew Cuomo keeps saying to people, there's no roadmap. We don't know what's coming because we don't have a playbook for a pandemic and opening an economy during a pandemic. And so mistakes get made. So that journey is very much a collective journey of a lot of people coordinating in a lot of different places on the East Coast, for example. But the good news is we're the only city and state that has remained low. It's the anomaly. So I am very into the message of not knowing the path, but knowing how to break free from the things that were in the past that are carrying around in our hearts. And one of them, the primary one, is that we have too much grief and we're carrying a tremendous grief around. So if we want to get on to the next part of our path, we have to separate from that immense grief that has come from, you name it, the women's movement, climate change, black and white relations, not just in America, but globally, political activism has become incredibly uh, heated. And so and anywhere you turn right now, there's no way out of looking at something that's going to bring a, a grief up in us. And so addressing that grief is part of what the turning is, turning away from it. Yeah, that's very, very true, absolutely. And, and we can't go back to 2019. We can only move forward, but as you said, onto a path 
that there is no playbook. We don't know what it looks like. So your rise to the sun, didn't people always just follow the sun or follow a story, keep the sun on your face, keep going forward? What do you think the rise to the sun symbolizes for you? I mean, that's what I would think is that when, when everything is all impossible to see, the path, that if you keep the sun in your face, you know you're always traveling towards the light. Um, in life, I know that's a, a very big image in um, life after death, that one would see the light as well. But it's always a matter of follow the light. And that's what I thought when I saw Rise to the Sun and the image on the cover is that if we keep moving towards the light, then you don't even have to look down at whether or not you're on the path. You'll just keep going. But part of the problem of the grief that we carry, whether it's from our childhoods or from experiences that are shared in our world or personal. I wrote somewhere in the book, there's a beautiful uh, prayer by the Dalai Lama. It says, never give up. And I used to have it on my wall. My mother mailed it to me and I had it up. And I realized when I was looking at it often, when I was not feeling good about life and I was in a lot of uh, grief from old things, is I couldn't, I, I kept feeling bad looking at that statement. I thought, it's nice that he says don't give up, but what does that mean? Mm. What does that mean don't give up? I mean, I was sort of thinking I've already rather almost started to give up. And so it made me feel worse, not better. It didn't make me feel encouraged. It didn't make me feel I could do it. It didn't make me feel stronger, even though it, it should have possibly. The words are right. So in the book, I broke it down. I'll give you an example by looking up the speech that Sir Winston Churchill gave during World War II, and he delivered it. And it's the, it, the we think the words that he gave were don't give up or never give up. But it turns out the words were actually never give in, don't give in. And he was really stealing people to be on the long journey, the British people to stay on the long journey. It wasn't about stiff upper lip, which is what we all think it is, like toughen up and just bear through this. It was about settling into this change. And it had a meaning, and I wrote the meaning in the book after I gave it thought and research, which is he meant service. He meant to serve others. Never give in means to serve. It doesn't mean just be a rugged individual or keep going no matter what and push and plow your way through everybody. That's not the meaning. So we have to look at the meanings of some of the statements like the Dalai Lama's. That's how I did it because it doesn't make me feel bad anymore to read that, but it's because I understand it. And that's what my book is. One of the principles of the book is to help people see that we need to retrain our way of seeing. Mm -hmm. And that's very important. The book is about what you talked about, the sun, which is sight and seeing our way through. Right. And seeing our way through means we need to re-understand some of these things that if something makes us feel bad, we should look at why. We should start to 
determine whether there's something wrong with the way we're looking because it's causing us that grief, that way of not seeing the love in something or seeing the path. Uh, there is not one path that my book is filled with, as you know, a lot of art from different traditions all over the world, India, China, South America, North America, it's men and women, it's every kind of religion and spirituality. And that's because we don't all see things the same way, but we can all release ourselves. I love that. I, you know, you mentioned religion and spirituality. And before we, we begun, we were talking about kind of the juxtaposition between those two words, how religion has such a connotation nowadays, but, but spirituality, can you talk a little bit about those two words and how they, what they mean to you? There's a, okay, the book is broken into three sections. Part one has two parts. One is called flushing the psychic toilet and the other is called prayers because the book has a prayer at the end of every footstep. And the prayers help us move through the journey. They help underscore the purpose of each footstep and time to think about it in a different way. When I wrote the prayers chapter, I did not want it to come across as religious because I knew if we put prayers on the cover and filled the book with what we call prayers, whether they're songs or poems. So what I did is I found a wonderful book. I can show it to you, in fact. If I take a second here, I may even have it. It inspired my book. And it's hard to see with my screensaver. Yes. Go but gentle into that night. Put it in front of, I hate to say this, but your face, and then we'll be able to see it. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. And this book by C.L. Salzberger, popped into my life and turns out he collected 450 unique prayers through his life. Sulzberger was the heir to the New York Times family. They're the Sulzbergers run and controlled it and they still do since the beginning. And he was the foreign correspondent in Paris during World War II. So he met every person of interest in the world during his time as the bureau chief and senior editor in Paris. And his book, Being Filled with Prayers, is very interesting because he opens it saying he was an atheist. Mm. So it was very important for me to use what not only his, some of his charm and some of his ideas that prayer is not just the religious definition of asking for something to happen or hoping that we can connect with spirit in a way. He says that it is all human emotion. That, it, that the prayers of people, men and women in all the ages, runs the gamut of every emotion that is possible for human beings to have. And I love that because that redefines our experience of what we consider prayers. And I think that a big part of praying is music because it's a way that we share. And my book ends with that idea that music is when we start singing a song together, whether it's at a concert or at home, or when we're walking in the street, when we lift up and sing together, we engage in something that uplifts us, hopefully, or makes us, if not uplift us, it might be the opposite, actually. It might 
represent or express an emotion that we need to express. But it certainly evokes emotions, that's for sure. And it's so, a shared experience. So quickly to answer your question, it was funny, my uh, cover designer, who's incredible, lives in North Macedonia, which used to be Yugoslavia. And he's the one who wrote me. I sent him the book. He wanted to actually read it, which is a compliment, after designing this fantastic cover. And he wrote me and said he was surprised. And this is in a prior communist country, as you know, um, that spirituality is not religion. And it was from him, his name is Georgie, who I started to discern that we need to talk about that difference spirituality being in a regard how we approach our emotions how we can release our emotions and then share the ones that we want to share and i think that's very important i'll just say it again we're sharing the wrong things with each other in our angry activism we're sh we're sharing often our wounded hearts and our trauma around things and i don't want to digress too much but i think the activism is what makes this book right and important for our times that we start to look at our emotions in relation to our activism and if it's all anger and it's all unfinished business that we didn't finish in the civil rights era of the 60s with martin luther king jr that's all coming up now because it's unfinished business mm -hmm. that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to get up and turn away from which is that unfinished grief, we need to finish it. And then we can see what you're talking about, which is or the inner parts of the logo, which is the lighter part. And if you don't mind, I'll say one more thing. The logo is seven circles, so it's the seven footsteps. And you can see it doesn't look like up, it goes in. It's a telescope shape, which, so it's like sight. That's the design of it, that we're looking in on ourselves and we're looking in to things like a telescope and it's not that one part of it's lighter than the other it's just the way of seeing rather than the way of just thinking that the only way out of something is up i don't think it's up i think it's in hmm. i like that view so we are on your logo shall we say too often dealing with the outer ring with our emotions rather than dealing with each other and issues in the light. So with that, why don't we do a little screen share? Sure. What do you think? And I'll show you something. Can you see my screen? I can. Absolutely. This is a part of the book that you told me that you love. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it is a chapter called Worthy of Love. Yep. Worthy of Love, how we explain the concept of being worthy. Because what happens when we're not worthy of love? Then we're ashamed of ourselves or we just haven't moved through things that are still sitting stuck in our hearts. But when we become worthy, we start to change because we can find some peace despite the traumas that we encounter. So peace is really the key of this chapter, of this footstep. 
-hmm. And Dr. Nancy Black is an incredible woman who works at, uh, has worked much of her career at Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and she's a senior psychiatrist who I interviewed. She is who combat veterans come to see first when they return from combat. And in this chapter, we talk about how she looks at part of not how she treats people, but how she deals with herself mm -hmm. while she's treating people. And it turned out the first 35 years of her life, or until she was 35, she was a Tibetan Buddhist scholar. And her only way into medicine, or her best way at a late age like that to go into becoming a medical doctor, was to apply to the military. And she got into the Navy, but I think she missed her deadline by a week and ended up in the Army. And so she became an Army psychiatrist and MD. And what she's explaining, and I'll try to keep this simple, is that she doesn't ever project her Tibetan Buddhist background onto any patient, but she can approach her patients in a way that she understands from her own practice in Tibetan Buddhism. And one of her key messages is that it's not accepting yourself that matters, it's accepting something external that's happened that might have caused you terrible grief. And when you accept the external problem or the external situation, then there may be a little crack, a little moment when you can find some internal acceptance. And for her, that's the moment that helps you heal. So you're not maybe going to have a, big wow day where all of a sudden you wake up and you've healed or you've had an epiphany or you've had a big moment. It could be a little thing. And she says here that when she talks to people about their trauma, she changes the words that she uses. So I'll just share this part with you. Influenced by the Buddhist practice, certain turns of phrase have been reframed when approaching and helping others heal from trauma. And by the way, Stephanie, the reason I'm saying this to you partly too is a big question I have after having read this book is not how do I help myself, but how do I help others? Mm. It's just a great thing when you've done a good healing on yourself, you should be sharing that with others. So the question is, how do I help others? So you have to learn that lesson while reading this book, as well as so it's not all for me. It's how do I heal the person next to me or the people I meet? Right. Dr. Black avoids using the words spiritual and spiritual healing because on an emotional level, she observes many people feel protective of having their spirituality or religion taken from them or fear that, quote, you want them to be something else. Instead, when she asks a patient, What's closest to your heart? The reply may be my puppy or my grandma. That phrase seems to be more neutral, she says, because, but still conveys a sense of something meaningful other than self. And this is the key to Dr. Nancy Black's message about being worthy of love. Mm. And I'm gonna say it slowly. In the state of grief or fear or persistent traumatic symptoms, she says that 
from moment to moment, people can still be from the heart. From moment to moment, people can still be from the heart. And she's saying that that's right in the middle of your worst feelings and your fear and your grief and that you're changed and you're never going to get through. You can still be from the heart. So she takes away the problem of saying, what's wrong with me? Or how am I going to change for the better again? Because I don't think I can ever get better. She'll change the question say, what's closest to your heart? Mm. And so the prayer of this chapter, and maybe you'd like to read it. Sure, I would love to. By Nancy B. Black, who is a colonel in the U.S. Army and a medical doctor. Be peace. Feel peace. Breathe peace. Live peace. Like for the soldiers and their families, for all to whom a legacy of healing is offered, we each have a personal responsibility, the ability to create a version of acceptance in the world externally that will move us toward an acceptance in ourselves. To arrive and be there, you can also feel heart, live heart, be heart. What a beautiful prayer. Isn't it beautiful? Now, if we go back to the little intro to that prayer in the text, it says, as Dr. Black says to people all the time and has a note to self in the office, which means she has this on her desk, mm. on her wall, always wear joy and always be ready for something wonderful to happen. Mm. That's what she has on her desk. Isn't that great? That is. No matter what's happening, we can change just from this one chapter being worthy of love is we can absolutely change our external acceptance because it's hard to accept that migrants are being separated from their kids at the border. It's hard to accept that we killed the oceans and the coral reefs are dying. It's hard to accept that uh, leaders in our governments have decided to uh, corrupt the very language that allows us to have a free press. You name it, name it. And there's a reason to not feel that we should accept it, which is resist, right? The resist movement, for example. But this is very different. This is not to say that the others are not right. It's just to say this is, I believe, part of our path to healing. Mm. They're different. Resist means don't let them get away with it. But healing is personal to us. It's inside us. And like I said, I am very interested as we have more conversation about a book like this and people who are doing work in healing on themselves and others is how do we help others? How do we serve others when we heal? 
that to me is a big a big question I walked away from when writing the book. And in this way, it's so empowering. It puts it and all the power within yourself and rather than be affected, you can then affect. That sounds like such a message that when you said to put on, you know, that, that joyful garment. Well, do, you know, do you know what you're saying is, is right? Because it, it's something so inherent and important in this generation and this time is we all want to do something. Right. Right. Those are the real plain old English words. I want to do something about this. I want to do something about that. And what inspired me to start writing is, well, we can, but we have to get this grief out first. That's, it's, that's the beginning of moving forward. Exactly. That's and the then you can start to do things. I mean, I wrote in my book that I stopped drinking five and a half years ago. And at first, you don't feel you're much use to the world or to your family or to your friends anymore, and definitely not to yourself. And the last person you feel safe with is yourself. But there comes a point when you do start to learn what service really means. And I think that the sharing of our healing with each other is what we do, or what we should be doing with sharing our healing, not just sharing our anger. Uh, this is a painting. As you know, there's 22 paintings and works of art in the book from museums and artists and a few of, of mine. This one that you're looking at is from Lauren Harris. Lauren Harris, 1885 to 1970, was a great Canadian spiritual painter of landscapes. And he's a big deal, like, like Bierstadt in America or... Ansel Adams in America, a very big deal, uh, and many of his paintings are in the National Gallery of Canada. And this painting is a big, gigantic beams of light coming down out of the sky, so not too different from the logo of my book in that regard. This is where we finally want to get to, which is where we start to see what's inside. And we start to see that what's inside can be shared in a healthy way with each other. I sometimes joke, I feel like I'm Mr. Rogers when I keep saying this, sharing what's good. Because Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers with the uh, Mr. Rogers TV show, you know, had songs for children about saying, what do I do with the hurt that's inside? That was his great teaching for children that not we don't want to cover up. We want to go into a safe place where we can feel uncomfortable that somebody else is different than me or said something to me that I didn't like and we can work with what's uncomfortable and then come back out into the world and feel good it's very like that so if you wouldn't mind would you like to read one more prayer it goes with the painting it's on the page there I would love to you may before you read it just say the first four lines of what the lines are about and they're right underneath these lines have been set to music. They have been chanted and sung. Written in 1923 by Dr. Annie Besant, an English philosopher, 
women's rights activist, and prolific author regarded as a champion of human freedom. Many meanings may be discovered to transform our world. When we repeat these few simple lines, either alone or in a group, reckons Joy Mills, president of the Theological Society of America, uh, sorry, Theo, so physical society of America, my mistake, from 1965 to 1974, we invoke the one reality to manifest itself anew. And this is makes the whole and make holy all that is in the universe about us. No more wonderful act could we perform. And here is the prayer. O oh, hidden life, vibrant in every atom. O oh, hidden light, shining in every creature. O oh, hidden love, embracing all in oneness. May all who feel themselves as one with thee know they are therefore one with every other. Oh, so when I, when I hear that, I hear several things, but one is I don't hear religion. No, no. I hear spirituality, which is that this energy, vibrant in every atom, just means that when I get up in the morning and if I walk out into Central Park, I can see it in everything, in the trees and the birds and the way the rocks are formed and what the light's doing in the sky and the fact that I'm there. And when I see it shining in every creature, all of a sudden I feel aware of everything. When I look for that hidden love, it's embracing all in oneness. That means we're all together here. May all who feel themselves as one with thee, which means what? Means we have to feel ourselves as one with thee, are therefore one with every other. And that's the sharing part. That's sharing that, that beautiful inner light of everything being in every atom. Mm. Not to be philosophical, it's very actionable, actually. It's a way of seeing, and that's this book. This yep. book has many ways to show people how to see either through the visual or through the prayers or the poems or the stories like from Dr. Nancy Black, how she treats people. Um, I'll just say one last thing in that chapter with Nancy Black on Worthy of Love, and here I'll come back, um, is I juxtaposed her. I, again, in the writing, I kept having to think who's going to go well with who. And it turned out it's Reverend Ava Suarez, and she's here in New York City, and she's the one who brought me the core message of what worthy of love is and why we don't feel worthy of love when we keep doing all these things that harm the environment. That was our conversation. Why do we not feel worthy of love based on what we do? And it was important, and she brought me to that. I mean, we can thank Reverend Suarez for that, for those three words, and also where they come from and what they can bring and do for us. But then being combined with 
Dr. Nancy Black's story about acceptance from moment to moment makes it a way of helping ourselves actually get there. Yes. I, I am so glad you used the word actionable because uh, so often um, we might get to a point of the thought, the philosophy, shall we say, and I love the prayers and, and the, the inner look that we take, but it's your footsteps mm -hmm. and making it actionable, which I think makes this such a treasure. Yes, we want to sit back and think and pause and reflect, but we do want to move forward and rise to the sun. We do. And I thank you for that. That's, that's the amazing part in your book here is that you don't leave us just sitting on a couch, you know, philosophizing about life and such, but saying, okay, now that you are healing, go and heal others. Yes. Wow. And share it. Yeah. Uh, we won't delve here into this, but we can just say that to me, that's real activism. That's an activism that I can almost detect as being proper to the healing of our planet and our healing of our earth. And there's a lot of conversation about it, a lot of amazing people working on everything in from finance to clean energy to uh, environmental justice. But it's what you just said. It's, it's healing yourself so you can heal with others. Thank you. Richard, can you do it. remind us or tell us where we can find more of you? Because uh, our brief time here wasn't nearly enough. I know you have a website at risetothesun.com. Yeah, and that's spelled... R-I-S-E, the number two, thesun.com. You can Google the book Rise to the Sun on Amazon. I also welcome everybody who wants the book to consider two things. One is to support independent bookstores because they will all be able to order it. Anywhere in the country, anywhere you have a local bookstore, if you tell them that you want it, they'll order it for you. And that really supports businesses that need that right now, especially during COVID, to be able to stay open and not go bankrupt. So I support Amazon, but I also really support independent bookstores. And I hope everybody will buy these at their independent bookstores. Uh, the other is the audiobook will be coming out in November. So in the next two or three weeks, that will be available exclusively on Amazon via Audible. Apple and iTunes. So I hope people will, in addition to the print version, get the audiobook. I narrated, I spent all of COVID narrating this book. <laughs> well, that was time well spent, I must say. But I'll, I'll just give a little secret to anybody who gets the audio version. 
get the print version also because there are beautiful paintings and poems and you like me will want to be folding over the pages of your book so i'm delighted that you have it in audio coming out for anyone who is driving jogging or anything else they might be doing but i think you're going to want the print also i'll just say that selfishly Thank you. I agree. So the, the benefit, there's two benefits. One is in the print book are all the paintings and prayers. The visual experience is a very important experience. Also the ability to pause and not just listen straight through something, but to come back to it gently and to take time with it. It's not a book to race through. But the audio version means you get to meditate on it. Maybe even outdoors in the sun. I'll add to that very quickly, Thomas Vendetti, who won an Emmy for his documentary on the Himalayas, is from Hawaii now, uh, has a program called Himalayan Sessions, which is benefiting a music camp in Hawaii. And what they're doing is taking ukuleles from Hawaii with master musicians and bringing them into Southeast Asia, the poorest countries, Cambodia, Myanmar, other places, and teaching children how to play the ukulele. And the empowerment comes through the music and the song, and the intention is spreading aloha around the world. And it's through music and song, and that's often with children who have never learned even how to read and write, but they can learn how to play an instrument and sing it or say it in their own language, which is also very important. So in the audiobook is a track called Processions by the probably the greatest living Hawaiian slack key guitar musician, Kayla Beamer. And the end of every prayer in the book, so all the way through the book, we end with music from Himalayan sessions from that music. And that is another way of experiencing healing, song, unity and prayer and sharing with others. Oh, well, that's a really good plug for the audiobook if I ever heard it. <laughs> Richard, I can't thank you enough for joining us here. And I'm sure that our listeners are uh, going to want to visit you at rise to the number two, rise to the sun.com. Catch the print book, catch the audiobook, and I hope embrace this message. Thank you, Stephanie. Oh, very thank much. Thank you for joining us and happy writing to all of our viewers. Yes, happy writing. Thanks so much for joining us for Once and Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us and happy writing.